Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This edition of the Patriots Report is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season, everything from NFL and bowl season to esports. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. With the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite leagues and events. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. Bet online where the game starts. In this episode of the Patriots Report, we talk to Eric Edholm from NFL Media. He's going to give us a look at some prospects the Patriots might be interested when it comes to draft weekend. We also have a conversation with Mike Rodak, who covered Bill O'Brien when he was an assistant in New England, as well as Alabama. He gives us a little bit of insight into what kind of coach O'Brien has become since he first left New England. Eric, let's start with this. The Patriots have the 14th overall selection Mm -hmm. in this year's draft, one of the highest under Bill Belichick. I I know that Seymour was 6th, Mayo was 10th. I think Ty Warren was mixed in there as well. Mac was in the the upper reaches of the first round. You wrote a couple of days ago on NFL.com the three biggest needs for this Patriots team right now, offensive tackle, wide receiver, and defensive back. This feels like, obviously there's a lot of time between now and then, Yeah, this feels like a year where Bill goes the decidedly unsexy route and gets a tackle. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, it'll be fascinating to see, do they go the veteran route? Do they look to the draft? Are they going to carpet bomb it and try to, you know, add three or four pieces there and, and see what sticks? I mean, you know, they, they've taken different approaches over the years, but I, I do think the draft route makes a lot of sense. I think that's a real possibility. But, you know, what veterans are, are available? You know, if, if they, I, I want to see if there are some trade possibilities that exist. They have, what, 11 draft picks I think they're going to end up with or something. So hard to imagine they'd use all of those. Maybe some of those are, are devoted towards next year's draft trading, you know, ahead, whatever they usually do. But I think if they, if they don't come out of, you know, by May 1st with two new starting tackles, I think we're – you know, we're in some trouble, but yeah, the receiver position too is interesting. Cause you know, as you and I have talked about a few times off the air and, and on the air, like th- there are some players there who should be taken better advantage of. So mm-hmm. are there some in-house solutions too that, that compound that a little bit? All right, let's take a look at the tackle position as it relates to this year's draft. Is there a guy out there? If he's there at 14 in the Patriots stick, who screams new England Patriot to you, yeah, I think there are a couple who make some sense. Um, Paris Johnson from uh, Ohio State is uh, a really long. I mean, I think he's pushing six foot seven. Athletic tackle. If you saw him at all in the in the uh, playoff semifinal against Georgia, I thought he moved really well. And you know, that's obviously a team that Bill Belichick and company have have scouted quite a bit, meaning uh, Georgia. And so I think that'll that'll be a tape that that reflects very well for them. Uh, on the flip side, Broderick Jones, uh, who, who's uh, on, on the Georgia Bulldogs this year, younger guy, a little bit more athletic, but pretty you know good sort of thick build too. I mean he's he was you know kind of pushing the three twenty range, a little bit shorter, 
you know, than your than your typical tackle, a little young. But those are probably the top players, unless you feel that Peter Skaronsky from from Northwestern mm-hmm. or Cody Mock from from North Dakota State are tackles. Some teams do. Uh, some are a little bit worried about the arm length on both of them. Kind of that 32 and a half, 33 inch range, which may fall below the threshold for for that position, uh, depending on the team, including New England. So those are the probably the most obvious answers. There might be a few more. Matthew Bergeron, I don't quite see him as a first round pick, but you know, if Cole Strange was a first rounder, I could see him being a, a New England first rounder. And I don't mean that as a disparaging thing. I just mean you know, they could move down from 14 and I think grab him in the lower parts of, of round one. Um, I'm not quite as high on Anton Harrison from uh, from Oklahoma as some others are, but I think he could be a good tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other guys, I'm just trying to think. Dewan Jones, the the right tackle for Ohio State. I like him a lot. Played a lot better. Darnell Wright from Tennessee and a couple others that I'm not crazy about, like Jalen Duncan, I think is more of a, a later day three, early day two, or later day two, early day three pick. But yeah, those are some some options in kind of the upper reaches of the draft. And we'll have a few of them at the Senior Bowl, which I'm heading down to this weekend. It feels like, at least history tells us, that the Patriots have done better in the second round. And just this is more anecdotally than anything with yeah. the tackle position. When you look at guys like Matt Light and Sebastian Vollmer, I don't know if there is that first wave. And again, you know, as we've talked about before, this precludes the idea of them going out trading, maybe finding someone in free agency, but finding those relatively developmental types. Again, Volmer is the guy that comes to mind for me. If you're talking about that long lengthy tackle yep. where you can kind of get him under the radar a little bit, he's obviously not a, you know, a blue chip guy, but you can maybe overdraft him a little bit. And, and that feels a little bit more like the Patriots mold. So it is, it's going to be interesting to see, how they how they decide to approach this because again there's free agency there's trades there are going to be names out there you yep. figure that the patriots are going to be a little bit more aggressive because this is such an area of need than anything else moving forward yeah and i would you know i i would have a hard time believing that they would go with you know even if they draft multiple players to tackle i would think only one would would realistically have a chance to start so maybe if if you are looking for two new ones you know they they put the veteran at left tackle and the the rookie at right tackle or vice versa perhaps you know and there's been some blurring of the lines you know we used to always make a big deal the left tackle is your most important it's your blind side protector you know what i've noticed is that when i've brought that up to teams it's it's less of a of a of a area of focus or concentration than it may have been a, a generation ago. So I don't want to say they're interchangeable, but they're they're there's less emphasis on hey, we have to get uh, a veteran left tackle. And there's some pretty good veteran options out there, or some interesting ones anyway. Orlando Brown might be the biggest one. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what the Patriots think about a player like George Fant from the Jets, who's had some good seasons in the NFL, but you know, Andre Dillard's an interesting guy who hasn't really gotten a chance to play this season that much. So there are some free agent options, I think, out there. I might be forgetting one or two others, too, but th- those are some of the bigger names. So, yeah, some kind of combination between free agency and the draft makes sense to me, or trade, for that matter. Walk me through the other two positions a, a little bit and give me a couple of names at each spot in a similar fashion. Like we said, you know, is there a guy here who might be a potential Patriot at number 14? I don't think they take a wide receiver at 14 again, if they yeah. stick. Um, but a wide receiver and a defensive back. I know every year there seem to be guys who you can look at him and say, look, that guy kind of fits what Bill Belichick might want to do in Foxborough. Look at the defensive back position and look at the wide receiver position for me. I know it's really, really, really early in the process, yeah. but are there some guys out there who might fit New England? 
Well, I would say that Jordan Addison from USC talking about wide receiver would, would maybe fit more of the, that's a good question. I have to think about whether I'd like him more inside in, in new England's offense. Cause you know, the way we talk about the old New England slot receiver position hasn't really been the same factor in recent years. Now, maybe Bill O'Brien coming back uh, kind of changes that a little bit. And, and it's obviously always going to be personnel driven. If you, I, I understand that Jacoby Myers has been very productive. So, uh, you know, if if he's on board, if he's back in, in New England, maybe that doesn't work as much. The only other receiver I think given what they have on the roster that I would consider at 14 would be Quentin Johnston at, at TCU, who I've compared to Sidney Rice, you know, kind of a, a little bit more of a juiced up version of Devontae Parker, perhaps where it's a, it's a yards after the catch guy. And, and he can, he can go up and get those 50, 50 balls downfield uh, a little bit hit or miss some games where he has four touchdowns, some where he has four targets, you know, for instance, national title game, yeah, after after Duggan missed him on that one early play where he was wide open in mid second quarter or something like that, they never went back to him again. I think he had one catch for three yards. So there is a little bit of a concern with him, but you know, in, in the game against Michigan, he was he was tremendous. You know, beating guys to the edge with his speed. And we're talking about a six four receiver. So you know, he's a little bit more atypical for New England, I guess. Uh, even though they have had some guys with that body type. That's also a position that maybe the first round and, and the talent available doesn't quite marry up. For defensive back, they tend to get kind of pushed up over over time, right? The, the closer we get to the draft, more people are saying, boy, we need to – if we don't take a corner in round one, we're not getting the kind of guy we want in round two or three. So, And, and it also specific to the Patriots this year, it feels like there's a lot of things that still have to fall into place. Jonathan Jones, Devin McCourty, there are a lot of questions out there Yep. That again, like we talked about at the tackle position, still could be addressed in free agency or through trades before the draft. Yep. I mean, what if what if Jalen Ramsey's available? Do they kick tires on him? You know, what what if there's uh, a safety who they feel like, like for instance, Jesse Bates from the Bengals will be playing this weekend. I mean, I you know I can't think off the top of my head of another free agent safety who I think would make some sense, but boy, he can cover a lot of ground. I think he's only like 26 years old, so they're there definitely are some some options there for in the veteran route. If we are talking draft, though, you know, maybe it's a little high for somebody like Deontay Banks from Maryland or Devin Witherspoon from, from Illinois. I would think those guys are, you know, top 50 definites, but they may not be top 20 definites. So I think that it, it kind of slims it down. I don't know that I see Joey Porter Jr. as a fit in New England um size playmaking ability but a little bit inconsistent and i wouldn't think his you want to see you'd like to see his instincts be a little bit stronger at times for especially for a player with you know as a legacy nfl guy his dad obviously a destructive defender and for the steelers the fascinating guy would be christian gonzalez i suspect he'll end up going before 14 from from oregon former colorado uh corner uh, but boy, he's got size. He is going to run a really fast 40 time, maybe sub four, four, um, his ball skills seem to have improved over the years. He's, he's a good looking player. I don't know if he goes, you know, top seven or eight, but I could see him going somewhere in that kind of seven to 12 range. You talked about Joey Porter jr. I cannot tell you how delicious it would be. The idea that <laughs> Joe, the idea of Joey, you Porter. imagine 
Yeah. You know, being putting on Patriots gear and showing oh up in Foxborough and having to root for a Bill Belichick coach team, given that history. I would love that. That would like be a, awesome. a little hole in the universe would tear open in the middle of the practice <laughs> field or something. I don't think that's possible. <laughs> the Steelers would demand a, a redraft or something. I don't know. Is there a guy who is not a first rounder, but scream again i use the phrase screams out you know he's a patriot who because for Mm -hmm. me they tend to take those they tend to take the solid choice in the first round yeah right you know the the guys who you think at least on paper this guy can step in this guy can be a day one starter they seem to go for second third fourth rounders there's always that inevitable guy who you go hmm okay well you know bill's gonna take him bill might be able to do something with him yeah, Marcus Jones, even though he did have the great career at Houston, he really, for me, felt like one of those guys this year where where Bill is able to identify a certain player, a certain position, whatever the case may be. You know, it, it's the line like he used with Julian Edelman and Matthew Slater, where he said, look, I don't know what we're going to do with you, but you right. can play football. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there someone like that out there in the upper reaches of the draft? I'm not talking about like a seventh rounder or an right. undrafted free agent, but a guy who strikes you as a bit of a spare part who if bill gets his hands on him could Mm. turn him into something that's a good question because there's usually always one or two guys that scream patriots but you know i i wouldn't have put taekwon thornton with him last year you know jones was was your your stereotypical patriot and you know kevin harris was your stereotypical patriot sort of you know, plan B at running back or whatever. So some of those picks made made perfect sense. Some I thought, that's not who I necessarily would have pegged for them. That's a great question. I'm trying to think of it does it have to be at those positions we mentioned no, earlier? No, okay. no, it could be anywhere. It could be a you know, whatever. It, it's just I, I'm just I'm just fascinated by those guys who again he takes and he shapes into NFL players. And look, not all of them work. Yeah. Let's, let's be let's be honest. You know, not all of them work. Yeah, but at the same time the track record is there where in the middle rounds he makes a pick and we're all left shaking our head going, why is he taking him when <laughs> yeah. this guy is still on the board? And inevitably it turns out to be an interesting move. All right. That's a good one because, and and there's one position that, that they've had some, some interesting picks at over the years, which is tight end. And, and they're going to, of course, going to be coaching at the East West Shrine game, you know, Bill and some of his uh, consigliere's more sitting in the stands and some of the younger assistants sound like they're going to be running the show. But, you know, they they drafted four guys from the East-West game last year, which, you know, was, was you know, Eric Galco, who runs that game, has been, you know, screaming from the tops of, of, of mountains to make sure everybody realizes, like, yeah, that's, that's a development. And the fact that they're coaching the game matters, too. So possibly somebody from that game and – Probably the highest ranked player. Well, one of the three or four highest rated players at that game is is Luke Schoonmaker from from Michigan. We've seen them draft some Michigan players over the years, uh, recently especially. You know, I think the league may value or view him as more of a, uh, you know, third round, fourth round pick or something. But if he if they took him at, I don't know where they picking forty six or something in round two. I think so. Yeah. It wouldn't shock me. Like that's. I think more than anything, they just decide like, this is our guy. This is our, you know, we don't worry as much about league value. I think that was evident last year. Certainly Darnell Washington, the other tight end from Georgia. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of love to see what the Patriots could do with him. And I realized that on a team with Hunter Henry and, and John, who so much money they have, maybe that's a luxury, but 
at some point they're going to have to think about life after them. If they're not going to use them, they might as well bring in some guys who can. And the only other tight end who kind of fascinates me, uh, meaning could be better than what he is right now. Cause I think Mike Mayer from Notre Dame is just going to be a really solid, you know, not Mark Andrews, but that style of player, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, but the, the Luke Musgrave from Oregon state, and we're going to get a chance to see him in mobile. Like there's talk that he could be a first round pick. I mean, I, there there are some teams who are utterly fascinated by him. Huge wingspan, great athleticism, great ball, con- you know, uh, ball security. I should say, good hands, uh, body control. Uh, that's that's one where you say maybe you know, but that's 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 a position that maybe they anger people by drafting at some point <laughs> this year. Do you foresee the Patriots changing their draft approach at all? Now that Bill Bill O'Brien is coming back to run the offense? Good question. I would think he would have some input on, you know, tackles, receivers, tight ends. You know, do they draft interior at all? I don't think running back a year after they took two. uh, I don't think quarterback. (laughs) Boy, like make it a little more complex. Um, Then again, you could argue... You know, maybe maybe Zappy's not a perfect fit and what what Bill wants to run, I guess. But yeah, I would think he has some input in, t- in terms of this is what we had when I was here last time. This is what worked. This is what, you know, I've been looking for at Alabama the last couple of years. I, c- I could see him having a, an imprint there. And there's been a lot of change in New England, too. A lot of the, a lot of the guys have, have left some new blood coming in in the scouting department. So, yeah, I would think it it you know, may, may have a little bit of a, a different uh, appearance to it. Is there the possibility of O'Brien looking at an offensive player that he worked with the last couple of years at Alabama and saying, this guy needs to come with me to new England? Interesting. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, let me think. I mean, there, there's certainly some poss. There's some guys who I think will, uh, I'm looking at my list here of, of Alabama. Obviously Bryce Young wouldn't be a, a, a possibility. Jameer Gibbs, you know, he's a running back, came from Georgia Tech and was mm-hmm. phenomenal for, for the Tide this year. Again, I do I think that's a position that they're going to be, you know, gung-ho to draft high because I think Gibbs will end up in, being a top 40 or 50 pick. Probably not. Cameron Latu, the tight end, is is an interesting one. He's not a big kid. I'll be seeing him next week in Mobile. But productive, very good in the red zone, kind of savvy, uh, you know, seemed to to find openings and and you know, would theoretically play that Johnu role. So that that's one I'm trying to think of other draftable guys that it's, it's interesting. You bring up Gibbs though, that, that I've asked this question of two other people, uh, the same question. And they both brought up Gibbs. He, I tell you what, there was, there was some, there was some talk when Alvin Kamara came out that the Patriots, the bills, there was another team, maybe the chargers. I don't remember. There were a few teams that kind of did some, some work on him, to the point where you thought, okay, this guy's going to be a top 50 pick. He slid. He he went to like the 70 something of mm-hmm. selection. I was shocked uh, considering how much interest there was. And so well, who does, who does Gibbs remind me of? I think he's got a, li- is a slightly smaller version of Kamara, but like offensive weapon, you give him eight carries a game, you throw to him six or eight times a game. Maybe he's used on returns when Jones isn't out there or some other, you know, way to get him the ball, maybe some end arounds from, from slot receiver position. I could see it working. He's electric. He's strong. He's tough. He runs well inside and out. He's a little, little thicker than you might realize. I think he's right around 200 pounds. So as a changeup, 
Absolutely. I, that, that would be one that that would fascinate me. But again, it would it would be a little bit of a luxury with the understanding that Ramondre Stevenson wore down over the course of the he year. Did. He was not the same guy over the last. And look, that's not a you know, it's not a slight against him. He did. They yeah. just relied on him totally and completely over the course of the year. And so the idea of bringing in more of that traditional third down back like they've had over the years in granted, Gibbs nice? is, Yeah. Gibbs yeah. is not in that same, you know, mold as Kevin Falk or Vereen or Dion Lewis or whatever the right. case may be, but he does give you a different look when it comes to the passing game. He would. I mean, it, and it was, it was, it was fun to see O'Brien have success with him right away too. Like they used him and they knew exactly how to, how to you know incorporate him into the offense when, like you said, he doesn't really match the skill sets of those players. And I'm trying to think back to the Texans. I don't remember a back quite like that in Houston. I'm probably overlooking somebody. It was mostly Arian Foster. So again, a different style of player. So Bill knows how to use his backs, clearly. I mean, you know, he got the most out of guys like Lewis, I believe, was there in that range and, um, you know, seemed to have nice success in terms of getting the most bang for your buck out of those types of players. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it doesn't feel like New England's had rookie running backs perform all that much over the years, but this is the kind of player you would want in the lineup right away. It's going to be interesting. Obviously, you know, every single year we think Bill is going to do this and he does yeah, right. this. And, it's so true. Yeah, yeah but I'm guessing. Yeah, there, there, there are in my favorite thing, and we've talked about this before, and we're going to see more of this at, you know, the combine and, you know, throughout the pre-draft process. But is there a three-cone guy out there? Oh yeah, I could comfort Boy. myself with you know the fast feet, the quickness, the you know someone who can get open in a phone booth. Obviously, people who listen to this podcast or people who read my stuff over the years, I love the three cone guys. Yeah, I, yeah those, yeah. those are my guys, and those are inevitably the guys that Bill takes a flyer on, whether it's Josh Boyce or you <laughs> That's know, right. yeah, you Josh know, Boyce. You know, gosh, I, I mean, Welker and Edelman and McCordy yep. and all of those guys. It's the quickness, it's the fast feet, it's the the ability to change direction. Very, very quickly. Not just yeah. the straight line speed, but the ability to change direction. I'm wondering if there's one guy out there right now, and obviously there's a lot of time between now and the combine when we're yeah. really there, but if there's one guy out there who strikes you as that three-cone guy that I know I'm going to be pushing for when it comes to the pre-draft process. Uh, yeah, that's a good – I'll have to look at my uh, – there's a there's a receiver from Princeton, that uh, Andre Yoshevich, uh, I think is how you say his name. Uh, Yosevich, I may have – I might be a little slightly off on that, but he's a track guy. Who is like a hurdler? I think I deca- or uh, decathlon maybe or heptathlon. I forget what he did. You know, he he was he was a multi-sport star from Hawaii originally. Came out to Princeton. Uh, took a little while to get going in football, but kind of has that 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 almost Chris Hogany kind of build. I would say if there's a New England comp there, and you know, I for a bigger guy, I think he'll test very well in that. That's just the first guy that popped in my head because I was doing wide receivers yesterday. So that that's one that has some new Englandy kind of vibes to it. And it's may, maybe a three cone vibe too. Like if you're looking for a different type of guy, mm-hmm. tank Dell from Houston is, is little, I mean, he's kind of almost a JJ Taylor of wide receivers, I guess. <laughs> you know, like, but he's a ferocious little thing. And and I I he could I could see him being not only great in the 40, but also in the in the the three cone. So that's one that comes to mind. Uh I'll have to get back to you on that one. Okay. I haven't I haven't okay. thought about the three cones that much, but that makes that makes sense with New England. My last question on those two guys, did either of them play college lacrosse? 
They, I know, right? That's the first thing you look for, right? Unfortunately, I don't believe so. I, uh, the Princeton kid may be the closest thing, but I don't believe so. <laughs> Eric, this has been fantastic, man. You got yeah. a lot to think about, and we're going to revisit this again between now Absolutely. and draft weekend. In the meantime, let people know how they can follow you on social media and where they can read your stuff. Yeah, NFL.com is where you can check me out, or if you're on Twitter, it's Eric with a C underscore edholm e-d-h-o-l-m and uh yeah we're getting into it man this is sort of the unofficial uh kickoff for draft season i'm excited this is great man thank you so much again we'll talk to you soon my buddy all right man Mike, you have a unique perspective on Bill O'Brien. You covered him when he was the offensive coordinator and an assistant coach up here in New England for ESPN. Uh, granted, there were a few stops in between here and Alabama, but you know you covered him down there as well with the Crimson Tide. Explain to me how he's maybe changed, evolved, grown as a coach the time when he was first here in New England and now as he's coming back to the Patriots. Yeah, there, there's probably a, a few different areas that that come to mind. I'd say in terms of schematics, I think one thing to keep in mind with Alabama is it's the same offensive playbook that all their offensive coordinators go from. So, um, you know, schematically, you, what you saw out of Alabama the last couple of years probably looked a little bit different than what you saw out of the Patriots 10, 12 years ago because it's really it's what Nick Saban wants and it's his plays and um, it's what Lane Kiffin ran and, and Brian Dable and Mike Loxley and Steve Sarkeesian. So, you know, from a schematic standpoint, it's a little bit hard to kind of compare because it really wasn't Bill O'Brien walking in with his playbook and, you know, slapping it on the table and saying, hey, guys, we're running this. Uh, it was more the other way around. In fact, that's where that story of Mac Jones teaching him, you know, the Alabama offense came into play where O'Brien had to come in and learn it. So, you know, how much he's grown from there, you know, it's hard to say. I think he's probably grown a little bit as a GM when he was with the Texans and, uh, had to play that role, had had to wear that hat, and obviously it did not go well. You know, with the DeAndre Hopkins situation, the Laramie Tunsil trade, and you'd have to imagine at some point along the way there, he probably learned something about player relationships and um, how to manage personalities, and you never really heard of any issues on that end at Alabama where there's any sort of clash of personalities or anything like what we saw with him and Tom Brady, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and that's the other part of it is just the personality wise. And, you know, I think he's viewed as being this, I don't want to say hothead, but, you know, a, sort of a, a high emotional guy sometimes on the sideline because of what we saw in New England. But it really wasn't that way at Alabama and partly because he was in the booth mm-hmm. and, you know, why exactly he was in the booth. You know, Nick Saban says it was Bill O'Brien's decision to be up there, uh, that he thought he could see the game better from up there. But I actually went back and I found a quote from his time in Houston where he said he likes to look the quarterback in the eyes and have those conversations on the sideline. So I don't know whose call it was exactly, but he was in the booth. So there's no sort of fireworks in the sideline that we ever saw. And he was working with a quarterback in Bryce Young that is very sort of cool customer, very laid back Californian type of guy that I just can't even imagine those two getting each other's face just because of Bryce's personality. Do you think he learned anything at Alabama that made him a better offensive coordinator or a, a more evolved, for lack of a better term, offensive mind? 
Yeah, you know, I think just being around a college game where RPOs are a bigger part of what college coaches try to do, in, in part because of the the rules being a little bit different um, with offensive linemen being able to block a little bit further downfield in college compared to the NFL. You know, RPOs are a bigger part of what Alabama tried to do. Just from being around other coaches, you know, that have coached in college, that's that's a huge part of the college game these days. So, you know, he's probably learned something as far as, it's funny because in football, things tend to trickle upwards. You know, what happens in high school goes to college and what happens in college goes to the NFL in terms of play calling. So you'd have to think that he's learned either from his own coaches on his staff or just from watching other teams in college, the things that college teams do well. And, you know, what Tennessee has done well, for instance, that helped them beat Alabama this year with a lot of the up-tempo stuff and uh, the Baylor offense where there's two wide receivers all the way on the sideline, basically uh, really wide splits. And then maybe some of that can translate to the NFL where, you know, his experience with New England 10 or 12 years ago was a little bit, you know, two tight ends and uh, they're huddling after every play and a little bit slower paced. And uh, you have to wonder if there's anything that he picked up on just from being around the college game that he can, he can bring forward essentially. Did, did he have a distinctive play calling style? At Alabama, like were, were there moments and I understand a lot of it is dictated by personnel and situation, but were there moments where you said, I know Bill O'Brien is going to call X in the, you know, in big situations, big moments or certain plays, guys that he obviously relied on, you know, you're, you're going to rely on Bryce Young a lot of the time, obviously, but are, were there moments where you said, I know what he's going to call right here? Yeah, I, I would say it's, and sometimes it was like, what he, what you knew he wouldn't call. And there was sort of this running joke among fans that, he wouldn't call slants over the middle, which were incredibly successful for Alabama, you know, in the years before that, because they had guys like Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy and Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith, who could just catch the ball and turn a 10 yard slant into a 50 yard play pretty easily. Um, and you didn't see a whole lot of that out of Bill O'Brien. It was, you know, I'd say it's very screen heavy offense is what we saw a lot of uh, more than we did previously under Steve Sarkeesian. But again, it, it is, personnel dictated that's that's hard to get around i think alabama fans maybe didn't totally grasp just sort of the the drop-off that there was this year at wide receiver and how it's harder as a play caller if you don't have Devonte smith or even jameson williams as bill o'brien had his first year to be able to call those plays down the field and, and sort of make those plays down the field happen so um you know i i think the style was certainly criticized in alabama um because it wasn't what they had seen to the same extent you know, in previous years, but I don't know if there's any egregious moments where you're like, oh man, I can't believe he's calling that play. There was one moment, Mississippi State game his first year, 2021, where they're down at the goal line and O'Brien had them spread out at the goal line, which listen to some coaches these days, that's actually a good thing in the red zone because you're making the defense cover more ground. And then Nick Saban called a timeout. They come back out, they line up with three tight ends and a fullback and run the ball up the middle for a touchdown. And you know, you could tell that Saban changed to play and he pretty much said so after the game. But, you know, I think there's there's probably some obvious running situations where they they threw the ball um, and it didn't work out very well. But again, that's sort of where college football has gone is to spread offense and throwing the ball. And that was their strength. And they didn't have a running back this year that was, you know, Derrick Henry type. You could just trust to get those three, four tough yards at the middle. They were more the, the receiving type of back. So, um, it all kind of comes back to personnel, and I think O'Brien did a did a good job with what he had. When you talk about the Patriots for so many years, the last two decades, 
and you talk about Bill Belichick, he casts a very large shadow on the defensive side of the ball. You know, Regardless of the assistant coaches, they have people say, well, it's a Bill Belichick defense. How much, if at all, did O'Brien get a chance to really put his fingerprints on that Alabama offense? or And how much of it really was Nick Saban? You just mentioned a situation where Saban you know, kind of overruled him. Were there situations like that at Alabama over the last couple of years? How much did O'Brien really kind of get a chance to really put his imprint on that team, on that program offensively? To some extent. Um, and it's tough in college football because things change so quickly. Um, and, you know, he could have put an imprint on Bryce Young, which I think he did. I think he did a good job of developing Bryce Young, but he's gone now. And, you know, there's six, seven starters offensively that they will lose this offseason and they lost a, a decent amount last year. So there's a lot of turnover that I think you know, everything, it's just kind of a new year, especially with the transfer portal now too. Like it's, it's a literally a new team that's putting on the field every single year. Um, so it's hard to really put your fingerprints on it in a way that will last even just an off season because it's, you're kind of building from scratch every year. Um, so, you know, I don't know if there's like a, a legacy, so to speak, that he'll leave with the offense in that sense. But I, I think Nick Saban, thought highly of him and that's different from I think the fan opinion here but yeah I think Nick Saban understands it's a tough job to call plays at Alabama because fans are never going to blame Nick Saban he has seven championship rings and if anything goes wrong in the field which it, it has for Alabama they lost four games the last two years they're just, the blame's just going to flow right down to the coordinators on both sides and the defensive coordinator Alabama got just as much flack too so it's a tough job where it's it's almost hard you have to be perfect you have to do you have to be number one in the country and even then fans will probably still have some questions about you and they weren't that bad they're fourth in scoring in, in fbs this year um but they weren't number one and they weren't beating teams by 40 or 50 points which is kind of the the gold standard here at alabama i'm curious what the fan reaction is i'm glad you bring that up what, what the fan reaction is in alabama to the idea of bill o'brien leaving are they happy are they sad are they lukewarm What's the overall vibe that you get from the fan base down there when it comes to O'Brien? It's almost universal happiness, which I think is a little bit dangerous just from having perhaps a, a wider perspective on things, having covered more teams. But again, there's a desire at Alabama among their fans every year that they will, and not a desire, but really an expectation that they will win every single game and that they just won't win it, that they will win it convincingly and just beat the other team to a pulp and win by 50 points. And if they're not doing that, then something's wrong. And that's where the coordinators tend to come into the crosshairs. So I don't think it was fair criticism, but it certainly existed. And I think it really reached a fever pitch towards the end of this past season, um, or really the middle of the season when they lost to Tennessee and then two weeks later to LSU, and that pretty much knocked them out. And at that point, I think fans were were done with him. But even going back to last offseason, when there was talk that when McDaniels left and would Bill O'Brien come to New England last year? I think fans were open to the possibility even back then. So, you know, I, I think there's probably a cultural aspect that kind of plays into it too. I think he's viewed as an NFL guy who runs mm -hmm. an NFL offense and, you know, he's a guy from Boston. It just SEC fans sort of want one of their own to be into that role. And you can even sense just in the conversations about who might replace him, like, Oh, you know, that guy comes from the NFL. Like, there's kind of this desire to have someone who knows how to run a, a college offense. And, you know, there's, there's probably a cultural divide that exists there too. I'm fascinated as to how Nick Saban handles his offensive coordinators, because it, it, this is, 
now it's going to be what I, I think I read somewhere six and eight years. Is it mm-hmm. just an interchangeable thing? Is it, I, part of it, you almost look at it as a way for him to help rehabilitate the image of some of his friends. I just, you know, with, with Kiffin coming in and Sarkeesian coming in and, you know, O'Brien coming in, how does the offensive coordinator play within the framework of that program? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an aspect of Saban's kind of rehab program, as we even joke about it down here. And he has all these analyst positions on staff that, you know, sort of get around the NCAA rules of you can only have 10 coaches on your staff, but he might have a dozen analysts. And even this year, there's a couple, you know, former head coaches and guys who are trying to get back on their feet. And that's actually where Sarkeesian came in initially as an analyst. And he went to the Falcons and he came back as as offensive coordinator. So you know, in terms of the staying power, it's a little bit different in each situation. Obviously, Lane Kiffin, that was a little bit explosive um, between him and Saban, just personality-wise. And uh, Kiffin ended up getting a job at FAU, but then there was him being fired before the national championship game against Clemson in 2016. You know, you had Sarkeesian, who got a job at Texas, which I think he would have stayed. Otherwise, you had Dayball, who got the job with the Bills. Um, and then you had Mike Loxley, who became the head coach at Maryland. So it's a job that is very much... You, you come and you, you use it as a launching point for your career. And to some extent, I could say Bill O'Brien is doing that. I don't know if it's as um, convincingly as some of those other guys. I think those guys are obvious head coaching candidates who moved on up. In O'Brien's case, his contract was up. I think he wanted to go to the, back to the NFL. And, um, you know, he was looking, though, for head coaching jobs. I mean, he was in that discussion for Georgia Tech this mm-hmm. year. I um, mean, he has experience coaching down there. That's kind of where he started. Um, and then, you know, people kind of floated his name for like the Nebraska job last year, he interviewed for the Jaguars job that Doug Peterson ended up getting. So, you know, it, I think just being an Alabama offensive coordinator puts you under radar, especially with them going to the national championship game most years and kind of having the offenses that they do. Is there an Alabama guy on the offensive side of the ball that Bill O'Brien's going to try to do everything he can to bring him into the NFL and have him taken by the Patriots come April? You know, I think he would like Bryce Young. Obviously, that's not going to happen for a variety of reasons. He's going to mm-hmm. be a top three or four pick. And, you know, obviously the Patriots are sticking with Mac Jones for the time being. And, you know, I think Jameer Gibbs is maybe the only name that really comes to mind. He's their running back who was a transfer from Georgia Tech last year. Um, has a lot of comparisons to Alvin Kamara in, in terms of what he can do. You know, I've seen as high as late 20s in the first round for him, um, but I've seen other mock drafts have him going early in the second round. So, you know, if he's still on the board for the Patriots in the second round, I I do think there's value to having that sort of guy. And just from watching the Patriots, I think Mm -hmm. they could use a guy like that. You know, they had Ty Montgomery there for a little while, sort of in that role. And, you know, historically, we all know Kevin Falk and Vereen and, and those guys and what they've been able to do in that passing role for for Brady that was a big part of what Brady did was just getting the ball to his running back and you know Stevenson I think is good at that but if you're using him as sort of your workhorse runner as well it could be nice to have a change of pace guy and um you know Gibbs was the the leading receiver in this offense that was Bryce Young's guy to throw to it wasn't really receiver a wide receiver because they didn't really have the the sort of the same guys at wide receiver that they used to have so it was Gibbs who really caught a lot of those passes out of the backfield I'd be curious if there are any tackles in that Alabama program who Bill might have his eye on. Either Bill might have their eye on who would be a mid-first round guy because I think as we sit here right now in mid to late January, offensive tackle is the biggest position of need for New England. Is there a guy in that program who might fit the mold here in Foxborough? 
Yeah, not this year. Um, obviously, last year, Evan Neal coming out ended up going, what, like eighth overall to the mm-hmm. Giants. And, you know, whether he would have been a good fit in the Patriots scheme, I, I'm not really an expert enough on the offensive line. But they do have a guy who is going to be a junior this year, J.C. Latham, who is a top five recruit a couple years ago. Comes out of IMG Academy, which is the same place I uh, Evan Neal came from. And, you know, it's basically an NFL factory in Florida. And he could very well be a first-round pick next year. Uh, that maybe could be on their radar, but they kind of had a an in, in, in between guy this year it was Tyler Steen, who was a, a transfer from Vanderbilt, the fifth year kid who started that left tackle for him. He's in the draft, he's in the Senior Bowl, he's probably a late round pick. Uh, I don't know, you know, if he, the Patriots bring him in, bring him in, they bring him in, but I think the Patriots are going to be looking for something higher than that in the draft, certainly at offensive tackle. Because I agree that that's probably the number one position to need. You're a guy who's been around the Patriots, who you were around the Patriots for an awful long time before you went down south. Uh, you covered the Bills, so you know you have an institutional knowledge of the AFC East. I'd be curious to get your take on the Patriots, the state of the Patriots right now, and the coaching staff, specifically the shuffling that's going on, not only Bill O'Brien, but Gerard Mayo becoming more empowered. One thing that stands out for me is that if they bring in Adrian Clem, that's going to be the first time they're going to have three ex-players on the coaching staff, and I'm fascinated to talk to long-term Patriots observers like yourself, do you think this represents some sort of change in Bill's overall coaching philosophy, or is this just a, you know, an interesting wrinkle? What do you think is, what do you think is going down? No, I think it is a change. And I would imagine that it's a change that has been forced upon him from above. Um, It seems like a situation where he's been humbled a little bit and probably told that uh, there needs to be changes in order for things to continue as they are. And I think part of that is, yeah, I mean, the Patriots have had one of the smallest NFL coaching staffs, if not the smallest, for quite some time. I don't understand what the benefit of that is. You know, obviously, you can kind of point to all those years of winning and say, well, it worked. But now you can point to four or five years of not winning and saying it's it's not working. And that's probably where, you know, you have to add some coaches and um, adding coaches from the outside, too. I think that's that's sort of a little bit different as well. You know, Clem played there, but has not coached there and to kind of be adding external coaches is a little bit different as well. I mean, they've done it here and there. It's typically the younger guys that are kind of coming up as coaching assistants and then they move on up the ranks and you don't often see, you know, them hiring a position coach just, you know, externally. Mm -hmm. So that's different as well. And yeah, I think it's a situation where, where Bill Belichick realizes that he does need to make some changes to what his philosophy has been. And, you know, from Bill O'Brien's standpoint, too, you come into a program or an organization in this case that is a little bit tumultuous in the sense that if they don't make the playoffs again this year, this coming season, 23, you know, that's what three out of the last four years that would be. And at that point, you know, you're really on shaky ground as far as what Bill Belichick's status is as coach and what Robert Kraft wants to do. So, and I think along with that, you'd probably have, if, if they don't make the playoffs, I think Mac Jones would also be in trouble because it's, it would be clear at that point that he's not getting them to where they need to be. So then all of a sudden you're talking about maybe a new head coach, maybe a new quarterback. Where does Bill O'Brien fit into all of that? Does he get mm-hmm. lost and washed? Does he become a candidate for head coach? But is Gerard Mayo the guy that is already sort of slotted into that role? There's a lot going on there, um, but it seems like a, a, you know, a situation, at least for now, that Bill O'Brien seems comfortable with. It feels like they're setting the stage for Mayo to eventually, and obviously, look, a lot of things have to happen between now and then, but it feels like they're setting the stage for Mayo to become head coach three, four, five years down the road. I still believe that Bill wants to hang around long enough to break Don Shula's record, and then 
the following year, whatever happens. But I, I think eventually Mayo is going to be that guy, at least as it looks right now. Totally, yeah. And it's it's, it's interesting, too, to see the parallel pass just covering Alabama right now because Nick Saban is less than a year older than Belichick. He turned 72 in October. And it's a little bit different in the sense that it's a little bit easier to stay on top in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alabama's still going to be very competitive every year. It's not like they're going to drop off in the way the Patriots have. Just it's the NFL versus college difference there. But you know, there is there's still talk about is the dynasty dying? Is it dynasty over for Alabama? And you know, who's going to be the next head coach? And nobody really knows. And it's such an interesting conversation because I don't think Saban really has an idea in his head of when he wants to retire. He obviously wants to just keep winning and getting rings and moving on up the the charts. But which one of those two guys, Belichick and Saban, retires first? How it all goes down? Do they do it on their own accord? Are they sort of forced out? Do they stay too long? Do they go out winning? Do do they go out losing? It's going to be really fascinating to cover. I think both of those teams, as it sort of happens, to me, it just seems like the Belichick situation is a little bit closer to Mm – some sort of finality uh, than Saban is. And mm-hmm. again, I think just the dynamics of the NFL probably play into that. It's funny you talk about the Saban rehab um, program that uh, I had one emailer suggest that they basically flip Bill O'Brien and Matt Patricia and send Matt Patricia down to Alabama for a couple of years, rehab his image, and then he returns to the National Football League. I, I floated that idea to my boss a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, man, I wonder if Matt Patricia would be a good candidate for defensive coordinator because the defensive coordinator has also gone at Alabama. Pete Golding um, went to Ole Miss and fans celebrated that as well. And so I'm like, man, I wonder who would be be the guy. And, it, you know, there is some sharing of coaches there. Vinny Sanceri obviously mm-hmm. comes from Alabama. His dad is, you know, a position co- or was a position coach here. Now he's one of Saban's assistants. And, you know, I could – I don't think it's the craziest idea. No, um, no, it's not. I agree with you. Yeah. Even it, Cliff Kingsbury too. I mean, yeah, that's a guy who kind of came up in the Patriots program 20 years ago as an offensive coordinator candidate for, for Alabama, but it seems like he's off in Thailand somewhere. One of the great things, man, about both Alabama and the Patriots is that they're never boring and you've had a chance to have a front row seat for both of them. Mike Rodak, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Let people know where they can follow you on social media and where they can read your stuff. Sure. Yeah. It's on Twitter at Mike Rodak. And then also we, uh, we have the the largest media outlet in Alabama at uh, al.com in Birmingham. So you can find all of our work there. Perfect. Thank you, my friend. Take care and we'll talk soon. You got it. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. I want to remind you one more time. This episode has been brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season, everything from NFL and bowl season to esports. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup, info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. With the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite leagues and events. Head to BetOnline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.